Hello and welcome. My name is Richard Dryling, and this is the Richard Dryling Show or the RD3 Show. I'm not really sure yet. Um, each episode, I will be looking at complex phenomena in the world and breaking it down into what should be an understandable manner. Uh, now, this is a podcast that I've been thinking about putting together for a long time, and I have been procrastinating a lot. Um, and one of the events that finally caused me to decide to put this together uh, is something we'll be discussing today, which is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, I want to preference it, pref, preface this by saying, look, I'm, I'm not um, a foreign policy expert. I'm just a guy who has experienced some things. And I want to walk you through how I learned the things that I know about Ukraine and hopefully give some context, particularly to Americans who are kind of never really studied this area of the world before. And the reason I want to do that is because it's been uh, something I've been studying all of my adult life. And I'm currently living in Estonia, and uh, I see things a little bit differently than I think most of my uh, friends back home can uh, look at it. So I just uh, want to share and hopefully cut through some of the noise that's going out uh, on social media, across the internet, across television, and pretty much all of the media that comprises our uh, world economy right now, or our world um, information diet, I guess. So a little bit of uh, background of my history studying this stuff. Uh, so I'm just, uh, I call myself a city-born redneck from Minnesota. I, uh, I, from a, you call it low socioeconomic uh, background. And uh, when I was 18, I enlisted in the Marine Corps and was lucky enough to get chosen to be a Russian linguist uh, for the Marines. So at the age of 18, uh, a couple of days after high school, went to boot camp and then ended up at the Language Institute in Monterey, where I studied Russian and then did a follow on intelligence course and ended up doing some cool training. Second Radio Battalion in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, deployed to Iraq as a signals intelligence analyst. Um, I served not, not really with distinction, but I served and uh and then I ended up uh, going to the University of California, Berkeley, where I uh, I actually never filled out the paperwork, but I pretty much was double majoring in international political economy and Russian language and literature. And I got two classes away from the Russian language and literature uh, degree and just never did it. So I've been studying uh, Russian now for a very long time. Um, but even with that background, I would say that the differences in the various countries that comprise like the former Soviet Union that built up the former Soviet Union, uh, not really, they never really came into focus for me uh, until I moved to a former Soviet Republic that's now an EU member and a member of NATO, which is uh, Estonia. And apologies if you can hear my kids screaming in the background, uh, recording this on a Sunday and everybody's home and awake. Uh, but here we go. So 
I'm now married to a woman from Belarus, which um, it provides a very interesting perspective uh, to me. And as did like getting to travel across uh, Eastern Europe and um, just kind of see the culture differences there compared to the U.S. It was, it was very interesting. Uh, the first time I went to Kiev, which is now under Russian attack, I uh, came out of the subway and a dude put a monkey on my head. And then I told him in Russian that I didn't have any money and he promptly took the monkey off of my head. Uh, very interesting place. Um, I mean, Ukraine's very interesting. But uh, I, all right, so here, let's talk about this. So if you're seeing stuff going around social media and people are, are trying to highlight the difference between Ukrainians and Russians, uh, this there's a reason that Americans don't get this, that we don't understand it. And, and there's this tendency for when people are in the States, you kind of find your little click or your groups. Click would be a small social group, or you're talking like larger groups where you have like immigrants uh, from certain countries that fill neighborhoods and then move uh almost as a groups like these waves of migration to other areas inside of cities or across the country. So uh, one of the things like my wife has told me a couple of times uh, is that Chicago is called a Belarusian city, like pretty much in any major city in the United States, you can find a Russian speaking cohort of people and they tend to cluster together because they have a little bit of a similar outlook compared to the rest of the people in the United States. So what does that mean? It means that like, for example, when I was hanging out and uh, going to meetings with the Russian culture club, when I was in uh, California, it means that we had people from Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, Russia, people who were born in the United States to Russian parents, but then spoke Russian and had been exposed to that culture. Uh, there's like a lot of different folks, but the, the thing is to understand is like, just because they grouped together in the States, that's not how it is in the old country. Uh, the example I like to give is like, so the Russian Jewish population ended up I mean, there's been multiple waves of like Russian Jewish people who have come to the U.S., but there's I mean, originally they got kind of like the Soviet Union basically said, look, we'll allow if you're, you're Russian Jew, you can just leave. Go ahead. And when everyone else was being confined and not really allowed to even travel outside of the Soviet sphere of influence that went all the way to like East Berlin and Eastern Germany, they uh, they were just like go. So I have a bunch of friends that are around who in the States who are from like a Russian Jewish background. And it, um, it's interesting to me that they'll hang out with other Russian speaking people when, you know, maybe those people weren't really the nicest to put it mildly during Soviet times when there were people around, like it just don't anti-Semitism is kind of like a, I don't know. It, it's, a way of 
not a way of life. Like it's not like everyone is neo-Nazis running around, but they're not exactly uh, pro-Jewish folks in, in these uh, former Soviet republics from what I've seen. Now, the specific thing about that I find interesting about Ukraine is I always thought of Ukraine and Russia together. And to some extent, like it was somewhat true, like of all of the former Soviet republics, I'd say the two that are probably closest to having a culture that's near to Russian would be Belarus and Ukraine. But the thing is, is they have their own own language, uh, which is informed like Belarusian and Ukrainian are actually closer to Polish. Um, it's like, I think 60% Polish, 40% Russian, like the uh, influence on, on the Ukrainian language. So like when I go there, I, I have to kind of ask people to speak Russian, which has been a huge problem uh, because they don't like to speak Russian anymore, mostly. Uh, there are laws against it in certain service contexts and stuff. And that's recent, but it's uh, it's there. But so you got to figure the whole time that the Soviet Union was in existence, Belarus, Ukraine, all of these, like the Baltics, uh, like where I live, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, they were always kind of what we in, in the military would call OFP. They're called, uh, it's on your own fucking program. And like the Baltics could get Finnish, um, like when you had the you know radio waves and air and uh, television going over airwaves, Estonia could get some of those. So they always kind of had this like Western influence. Uh, but Ukraine has always kind of been what you would call like I would say hot blooded, uh, and you know when the Nazis came through Ukraine they were greeted as as people who were like uh freeing them much like you know how we perceive the us uh going into germany and like freeing the concentration camps you know uh that's how people thought about in ukraine thought about the nazis coming in uh to take over from the soviets because stalin had done so much horrendous crap there in the 1930s like just horrendous shit. I mean, that guy was responsible for tens of millions of deaths all across the Soviet Union, but Ukraine got hit particularly hard. And so you fast forward to the fall of Soviet Union, Ukraine and Belarus give up their nuclear weapons. Uh, they're trying to forge their own path, but uh, Belarus gets Lukashenko, who's kind of basically like an old school Soviet dictator. He even has some mustache. And Ukraine goes through like a series of presidents that like the people are trying to get further and further away from Russian influence. But the uh, government wasn't. So the uh, winter revolution that went down in like 2014 basically the president of ukraine at the time was supposed to sign something like a memorandum of understanding as far as i understand this that was going to take them closer to europe and 
Russia did not like that. Um, so you have these demonstrations that took place on Maidan and all around Ukraine because Ukrainians like to protest is something that has come out of my uh, partner's mouth before. And while they are protesting, there's essentially like uh, people who start shooting. And now the people who started shooting are actually, they were in uniform, but there were no unit emblazed, like no uh, unit patches or anything. Um, so some people say it's like Russian uh, security contractors, like former Spetsnaz people, kind of like a Russian version of Blackwater. And the Russians, of course, say that it was uh, like a, they call it a Western scenario. It was a, most definitely, it was definitely not us, uh, the Russians. It was the West. It was uh, blah, blah, blah. So you hear like a lot of folks say that there was a coup d'etat. There wasn't. Uh, it was basically that president, when things got hot, decided to peace out, grab all of his like ill-gotten billions and, and leave um and not get killed so he left and uh that's not poroshenko that was before poroshenko a good documentary on this by the way is called uh winter on fire ukraine's fight for freedom uh yeah i don't know everything off the top of my head guys i just you know just uh study stuff and have experienced things so I try to re relate it, and uh, I appreciate you, if you're still listening to this, sitting through this weird rambling explanation of everything. So interesting fact is the Ukrainian president right now, which you've probably seen on, on like TV or in the news coverage of this horrific tragedy that's going on currently in, in Ukraine, uh, is Volodymyr Zelensky. And when I knew I was moving to a country that had some Russian speakers in it, I wanted to brush up on my Russian. So Zelensky was used to be in a uh, in a TV series that took place in Ukraine, shot in mostly Russian, some Ukrainian. It was called uh, Sluga Naroda, which means servant of the people. And it was about a teacher who basically like made a rant that went viral on YouTube and then got elected uh and then he ran for president in 2019 and he is now president so the guy who fled is yanukovych um and he was president from yeah 2010 to 2014 and he was removed from office that means that he got on a damn plane and left so that he didn't get all of his ill-gotten billions now i got to say that so for the americans uh look when i went to ukraine there were it was very different if you compared western ukraine and uh kiev but i spent most of my time where i actually got to meet people in western ukraine western ukraine is a lot like uh poland it, it, it's like it still has all these buildings that were built, uh, you know, in the 1800s. And it's it feels very much like a European city. 
but Kiev is a little bit different. Kiev is wild. First of all, there's like 8 million people who live there. So picture a city that has as many people as New York. Uh, that's not the official population. I think the official is like six. And of course, it's going to be much fewer now because I think there were several hundreds of thousands of people who decided to leave um, when the Russians decided to attack. But like basically, Kiev, when you're there, you can see all of the waves of architecture from you know 1800s and earlier right this very european city feel with classical architecture and then you get to like early soviet union had kind of cool architecture up until like until they started doing the panel buildings like uh which yeah, I'm, I'm sure you would have seen that before. You can look up the word Khrushchevka or Stalinka if you want. Uh, but they're, they're these like stereotypical kind of buildings you've seen if you've ever seen anything about uh, Soviet life or probably propaganda videos or anything. Um, but you so you see these you see this like pre-Soviet era architecture, early Soviet architecture combined with these massive, massive, like panel style, Khrushchevki is what we call them, or Stalinki. And they're these like Soviet era apartment buildings to fit all these people. And then on top of this, you see modern buildings that with the modern buildings in Kiev, you can tell the difference between the ones that were built shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union from the nineties, they still look vaguely Soviet. 2000s, a little less Soviet. And then you have like the 2010 forward, uh, especially since the break with Russia, where these buildings look like something you would see in, I don't know, like California, you know, it's the weirdest thing. And it has this, it's just huge pulsing metropolis. And right now, this massive metropolis that I spent like a few nights just walking around and just watching people man it's a very interesting city uh and that was Kiev. like with Lviv we had a family friend or like a friend that we were staying with and so I got to get real up close and with the people um it's worth saying that like in Kiev, people are willing to speak some Russian uh other than when the law forbids it which is like a there's this weird law where if you ask for service at a at a restaurant or something. Um, basically, if you speak, you can speak whatever language you want to speak to the service person, but they can only respond in Ukrainian, which makes things really, really difficult. Uh, but it's targeted mostly at people who speak Russian. So they want people speaking Ukrainian. And that is, uh, that's really because ever since this, uh, Ever since, you know, they got Yanukovych out of office, Ukraine has been moving further and further to the West. And I should say that they've added there. There's been an economic penalty for that. Uh, they're so close to Russia that, you know, there's there's just a lot of inflation and a lot of uh, economic issues and challenges that have been kind of dealt with by the population. Like when I was there, I bought a really cool uh, coat for like. 
four dollars. <laughs> uh, but things used to be cheaper there. Um, but I guess the the grivna, which is their currency, had like a, a big problem with inflation for a while. So it's like so in grivna that might be really expensive, but because I was buying it in euros, it wasn't that expensive for me. Uh, that shit's confusing. I'm not an international economics or finance major. I've just had to do a couple of like living out here for four years. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, it appears that I guess a couple of weeks ago, um, Zelensky was giving a presentation at some international conference and said something along the lines of he wanted to make Ukraine a uh, nuclear power again, not a nuclear power plant, but nuclear power, meaning like atomic weapons. And from the Russian view of things, that's not an acceptable risk because they're just too close. You know, like a, a nuke launched from Ukraine would not give any chance, any chance at all for them to either counter it or really have time to make a decision uh, while they, while they try to decide, you know, while this thing either like you got to prevent it or you have to decide if you're going to retaliate. The reason that's important is there were two times during the Soviet Union that we almost had a nuclear war. Um, and both times it was saved by Russian military people uh, or Soviet military folks. And I can't remember their names right now, but uh, there's a Chomsky book called uh, Who Rules the World? And it's covered in there. But essentially, one of the times was during the, uh, I think it was Bay of Pigs. Not Bay of Pigs, sorry. The, uh, we call it the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, these guys have like a different name for it. It's something like the, uh, whatever the period of the year is. And then like the, I don't know, was it summer Caribbean crisis or they call it the Caribbean crisis or something like that. But basically there was a rule that said that if there's a, if a Soviet submarine loses contact with the surface and loses like radio communication uh, while under bombardment or something like that by U.S. forces, they're supposed to, I might be recalling this wrong, but you can always look it up and, and tell me I'm wrong. That's fine. Uh, but basically, this submarine commander was faced with the choice, like, to follow protocol, he was supposed to launch all of his nuclear weapons, his whole nuclear arsenal, which you have, like, multiple missiles with multiple warheads on there. So what are you going to do? And he decided not to launch. And because of that, uh, we're still here and able to, you know, mess up the world more. But the other one is uh, this guy was had a computer like he was at one of these monitoring stations to, to check if the Americans were launching any missiles and 
the computer said that there was incoming missiles and that they were going to hit in like five minutes. And the guy in charge, again, the protocol was if there's a launch, then you need to retaliate. This was, I mean, it was part of the like mutually assured destruction, which I mean, Putin still kind of believes in that, unfortunately. And this like cold war era, like mentality, uh, Putin still believes in that. That's just the easiest way I can say it. The guy was a KGB agent. I recommend looking all looking his stuff up, or look his history up if you're really interested in that. But he's really, I would I would call him an interesting fellow. But he's also unpredictable because you just don't know. And he does that to kind of put everyone off their. Uh, to get people uncomfortable so they make mistakes and then he decides what he wants to do. Uh, but so at this, this time, the, uh, it was, you know, you need to launch a nuclear attack. If, if it so happens that you get an indication that there's a launch from the Americans and it turned out that the guy just said, no, I'm not going to do it. He made the hard choice to overrule the computer system and said, don't attack. And then it turned out that the computer system had made an error. And, you know, I believe that he was like both of those people. Um, I'm not sure what, the, what kind of consequences they faced if they were like looked at as heroes. I mean, they are the unspoken heroes of the world because if they, if either of them would have launched those weapons, then the American arsenal would have launched all of the weapons, and Moscow wouldn't be there. Saint Petersburg wouldn't be there. Probably the responding or the responding, you know, American or sorry, Russian nuclear arsenal would have hit, hit like uh, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, definitely those three cities. Uh, I'm guessing any city with more than a million people was probably some sort of target because that's where I would put the targets anyway. Uh, and, and so you got this like really weird situation where we were all saved by a couple of Soviets, but we don't talk about that in America. Just like we don't talk about like, according to Americans, the U S won world war II. Uh, the Russians lost 25 million people and fought alone basically from 1941 until the Italian uh, front was opened in like 1943, I believe, or early 44. And we really didn't open that front that Roosevelt had been promising to Stalin until, until D-Day, June of 44. Like, the Russians were just, sorry, the Soviets. It was the full Soviet army, not just, not just Russia. So you had, you know, Ukraine... You had citizens of Belarus, Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Armenia. All of these countries were fighting against the Germans in a war of attrition for many years. And we never even, I mean, we did what we could, of course. But, you know, Roosevelt did what he could politically. So this is like, I guess, my final point on this whole topic. Like, basically, uh, you know, in the U.S., okay, 
we are not in a position right now where we have an appetite for war. And that's just, it's one of the things that Putin has factored into his thinking on when to do this. Now, we have 20 years of, of wars that were just dumb. I, I hate to be a dick about it, but look, they were fucking dumb. Afghanistan was useless. Iraq was useless. I served in Iraq. It was fucking useless. Dead friends, lots of lots of trauma, many billions of dollars spent so that ISIS could wreck Iraq. And it's not even really a U.S. ally now, as far as I know. Uh, Afghanistan is now under Taliban control. It's kind of funny. No, it's not funny at all, but it's funny about like, you know, like where you laugh and cry at the same time. It's funny that, you know, uh, Charlie Wilson's war, like we fed the Mujahideen all kinds of stinger missiles and and really gave all kinds of arms to Afghanistan or to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan to fight the Soviets back in the 80s. And then the the so or former Soviets like you know Putin really got to pay us back by doing the same thing and giving all of that to the Taliban for like 20 years that we were fighting there. So either way, we've spent a lot of money when we should have been, I don't know, fixing anything in America, like fixing the education system, fixing the, uh, let's see, opioid crisis, maybe uh, making sure that we don't have the best and brightest in our country uh, going to try to figure out weird new ways to fuck poor people over, a la you know, mortgage-backed derivatives and these types of things. Uh, uh, just everything. The U.S. is not in a good place compared to where it was in 2000. Like when Bush v. Gore went down. Like the 90s and early 2000s, well, before September 11th, were a completely different place in the country uh, then, then we're in now, and we have mass divisions that are caused by a variety of different factors. And one of those factors is Russian mis and disinformation, um, an economic system that works for really the top ten percent of of earners in the country, and, and that's it. And and these are things. I mean, crumbling infrastructure, just. A lot of bad shit. We got inflation going on. And this is all figured into Putin's calculus on when to launch this attack. Okay. Now, again, I'm not a, a foreign policy kind of expert, but I will say that this is one of the things that I've learned. First of all, uh, diplomacy is a very calculated and it's just a very calculated kind of like social science. Um, so there's, you know, imagine the way that if you're in a single, like a social situation and you have a range of opportunity, like range of uh, things you could do between, I'm going to punch this person in the face and I'm going to listen to what they say and smile and support them. Okay. If that's what 
you know, your normal, you have like five or six options between that on the spectrum of, of, uh, of actions. Okay. When you're talking about like diplomats and diplomacy, and you're talking about the ways that countries can apply force, it's, it's much further, right? Because you're talking, you know, you're either your ally with completely free trade. Maybe you have some sort of, I don't know, other arrangements with the country or their uh, complete enemy. And when you get into that point, right? So you have diplomacy, intelligence, the military and the economy are the ways that you can apply force to a different country. Um, But you have these diplomatic relationships with all of these countries and they're all moving at all kinds of different times. Now, uh, they're, they're constantly moving. That's important to see. It's important to understand. You can't, you know, Russia now is not the same Russia it was in like 2000. It's not the same it was in 1996. Uh, and the reason this is important is like, I didn't understand how much all of this is calculated until I spent a little bit of time uh, in like with a diplomatic environment in a, in a weird other context. And like, to me, I'm just like a dude from Minnesota. So I like to say what's on my mind and that's it. Just like, well, you shouldn't be a fucking prick and you won't get punched in the face. You can't do that in diplomacy. You just can't. So when Russia finally decided to completely recognize its two separatist areas that it pretty much invaded in Ukraine, Crimea. Um, Well, it it pretty much absorbed them. But when it decided to like recognize these formally, that was a very calculated thing. And that was something that I had kind of expected that he would do and then put troops there. Uh, But I did not expect him to say that Ukraine was historically a part of Russia, which is not true. I mean, it's just not. They were occupied by the Soviet Union, not historically part of Russia. In fact, what is now the Russian Empire, the center of power there, uh, originated in Kiev, and it was called Kievan Rus, and it was like a small empire that lasted from 900 AD to like 1240 AD, which is like so far back that no one even gives a crap, but, but yeah. Anyway, so now you have uh, what happens next, right? It depends on Putin, if you ask me. Um, So these diplomats and all of the diplomatic relationships and treaties that have been signed over time have a very specific set of, of protocols and things that need to happen and are allowed to happen. So... If, for example, the U.S. were to send a troop, even one guy, and they go kill a Russian in Ukraine, then Russia would be well within its rights, according to international law, from my understanding of everything. Again, I'm not a genius on this shit. I'm just trying to break it down in a way that's understandable, okay? they Then they could just declare war on the U.S. All right, but so technically right now, what Russia has done is it 
invaded a sovereign country that wants to be independent and has said, oh, this country doesn't have any right to exist because it's historically been a part of us. So we're going to take it. And what some experts think is that they basically want to put a like a crony Russian, uh, like a favor, favorable to the Russian government government inside of uh, inside of Kiev, get Zelensky and the, the pro-Western people who were democratically elected out and then strip Ukraine of its military and then go about their day. Uh, the thing is, the way things actually work on like in real life, not on paper, is vastly different. And I don't think that Putin understands um, what an insurgency is, even though he probably spent some time in Afghanistan as a KGB agent. Uh, he just, I mean, the, right now Ukraine is giving rifles to basically anyone who's of fighting age. You want to fight? Here, go. Uh now the other options, I mean, so it depends on, on how long this takes, what the outcome is, but like, so I'm, I'm living in Estonia right now. If Russia were to decide that it wanted to attack a NATO country, which the bordering countries um, that are NATO and U, uh, EU, which is actually part of the reason that Putin is attacking right now is uh so you got Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland. And if any of those countries were to get attacked. So right now, without considering like escalating, NATO can move troops there, can move troops to those countries and air forces. And those countries are allowed evidently without this being considered an escalation to to hand all kinds of equipment and money and stuff to Ukraine to fight the Russians. But if the troops go in, then Russia would be justified in attacking back. And now this is, it's all very nitpicky, but I can tell you in these statements that the leaders make, every word is calculated. Uh, Putin and his supporters in Russia, which, I think, you know, he's really not that popular back home. He's lost a lot of his support. Now, he's more popular than probably any U.S. leader has been in the last, like, since Obama. But he's, like, still not popular compared to where he was historically. Now, he's been in power since 98. It's going to happen. So some people think that he might be just launching this to try to shore up support back home. Uh, but, you know... It's just such a horrendous mess, all of this crap. But there are currently protesters getting arrested all across Russia because they also don't want to be fighting. You know, like, this is Putin's war. It's not a war between Russia and Ukraine. The citizens of countries, they, they do the fighting, but it's not them who makes the decision to go to war. Now, uh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Okay, so I, I feel like I need to add this because my uh, partner has been explaining to me like many times. So one of the statements or one of the things that he said when he declared war, one of his couple statements was that 
you know, Ukrainians are neo-Nazis and they're going after Russian speaking people and Russia feels the need to go defend its Russian speaking people in those areas. Something to understand is like during the Soviet Union, one of the ways that Russia maintained control across the entirety of the Soviet Union was to send people to each of those countries, like forced migration of ethnic Russians to all of these other areas. Now, so Putin accused the Ukrainians of being, uh, first of all, committing genocide of Russian-speaking people, which isn't happening. And most Ukrainians do speak Russian, even if they prefer to use Ukrainian, okay? The other thing is, uh, you know, just because you have people who speak something like the same language as you and have a similar culture or elements of the culture doesn't mean that you get to invade the country to go protect them. And I'll give the examples that uh, were given to me. Like you don't see Great Britain trying to like invade the U.S. Uh, I mean, that's a different history there, but I mean, they tried <laughs> twice, but hey, didn't work. Uh, you don't see like Germany trying to annex Switzerland. You don't see France trying to annex the French speaking parts of Belgium. You don't see, I don't know, any other countries trying to do that. So there's no ethnic cleansing going on. There was no coup d'etat in Ukraine in 2014. If you're reading these things, you're most likely hearing some sort of like Russian propaganda being repeated back. Now, I'll admit, I do come from a very Western perspective on this, um, but I'm trying to kind of break down the situation for my homies in the U.S. And if I'm wrong, uh, feel free to tell me that I'm wrong. This has gotten very serious. Uh, this is There will be funny segments in some of the other podcasts, but this one, I really just wanted to break down like the situation in Ukraine, why I think people in the U.S., don't necessarily understand the difference between Ukraine and Russia in a lot of cases. Uh, and it's because when we see Ukrainians and Russians together in the States, they're usually together. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, if you have any questions, feel free to email me at uh, rmdreiling at gmail.com. That's R-M-D-R-E-Y-L-I-N-G at gmail.com. I hope that I've tried, like, broken this situation down in an understandable manner, and it's followable and not too complex. If it's, if I'm missing the mark on this, please tell me. Um, if there's other topics you'd like to know about, let me know. I, I want to cover not just I actually want to stay away from geopolitics, to, to be honest. This is just something that's near and dear to my heart, because if Putin decides to go completely ridiculous and start trying to take up countries that were, you know, that are currently part of the EU or NATO and wants to start World War Three, then uh, like I'm basically in the line of fire for that. But as it is right now, like we're safe where we are. Uh, my heart goes out to my friends and their families who are currently in Ukraine and under fire. Yeah, uh, my, my, my heart goes out to those in Ukraine. Um, there are the Red Cross 
is always able to get aid into countries that are currently at war. Um, so there's, if you go to the International Red Cross, there are, um, and there's a lot of other things you can do. You can donate specifically to the Ukrainian military. Uh, it looks like they have money and they have bodies. They need equipment. Um, but if you just want to help the refugees, you want to help relief efforts, I recommend taking a look at, um, go to the International Red Cross. You can Google Ukraine. There's a lot of different places that are trying to make sure that, that people are okay. But right now, people in Kiev, in a, a city that I was in, to teach a winter school like less than a month ago uh, are hiding in the metro stations uh, in bomb shelters. Now you, they're tough people and I'm sure they'll, they'll get through it, but you know, give what you can and just go hug your family and be happy that you are able to hug your family and that your, your family's not having to go off and fight for their freedom from a tyrannical dictator who sees an entire country filled with at least 45 million people as a strategic objective. I mean, that's really what it is. It, that's what it comes down to. And, uh, you know, like I'm not saying Ukraine was a perfect place, is a perfect place. It's not. There's plenty of corruption still around. I had a friend who got strep throat when visiting his uh, wife, his wife's family, and they had to bribe someone to get like his to get him his own room. Uh, but it, it, like, it's just it's a different place, you know. It, uh, it doesn't mean that there's like the people were very hospitable to me. Uh, no other country that i've been to can you gain like eight pounds in a week you know just from like all the food and and drinks that people are giving you like it's, it's a really cool place and it's people on the ground who feel the same way in a lot of cases that you do right like they just want to feed their families they want to you know love and be loved and that's it and uh, i want to break that down a little bit i hope this was useful if it's not uh, you know, feel free to hit me up on Twitter, Richard Dryling. I think I don't even know what I'm, I like barely tweet. Just hit me up and, uh, and, you know, tell me to go fuck myself or tell me you want to hear more anyway. Uh, take care of yourself, hug your family and, uh, go learn something.